Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine. Heine Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 14 of The Past and the Curious. Uh, October 2017 marks our first full year of creating podcasts. Uh, it's a history podcast for families and kids and adults, anyone curious, if this is your first listen. Um, if you haven't listened to all of the episodes, go back, listen to the old ones. There's some really great stuff back there. Please, please. Um, it's been so much fun, and we're excited about the future. Um, we're going to find ways to hopefully get you more content, but it's a lot of work to produce. Um, we're just so happy that you are making use of it and enjoying it. So thank you. Big news on the Kids Listen front, the grassroots organization that we are so proudly a member of. Um, there's a mobile app now, Kids Listen. You can get on your iPhone or iPad um, that has all of the great content you can explore. You can find new shows, uh, shows like Tumble, shows like Alien Adventures of Finn Caspian. Um, and I got a shout out to Book Power for Kids because one of the stars of Book Power for Kids, Chaska, is in our episode as the voice of Charles Dickens. But on with the show. Okay, say it three times fast. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. Mm, yeah, nailed it. We don't actually think about where tongue twisters come from very often. Peter Piper's origins may have been lost since his emergence in the early 19th century. And leave it to the woodchucks to figure out what chucking wood might actually involve. But one of the most famous tongue twisters, She Sells Seashells by the Seashore, can be traced back to one very interesting person. She was a paleontologist before people really knew what dinosaurs were, and she made some of the most important early discoveries about evolution's origin at the age when modern kids are entering middle school. Here's our friend Heather Funk to tell you the story that she wrote about Mary Anning. Lyme Regis was a sleepy seaside town in Dorset, England before the 19th century. It was known for its beautiful ocean-facing cliffs and the charming cottages that lined its ancient crooked streets. This began to change after two famous revolutions. One was the Industrial Revolution, which changed the nature of transportation in England after the steam engine was invented. The other was the French Revolution, which made the political climate on the continent of Europe unstable to say the least. Put them together, and you get a growing number of people who could travel, but who would rather stay away from the hot spots where danger might be found. If you're anything like us, you have a shelf with souvenirs from your favorite trips you've taken. 
That's nothing new. As long as people have traveled, they've wanted something tangible, something they could touch to remember their experiences. This was certainly true in Lyme Regis. Instead of airbrushed t-shirts, however, people brought interesting little rocks, which they called trinkets, home with them. There were a few different kinds. Snake stones looked like coiled up little serpents. Cone-shaped trinkets earned the spooky nickname Devil's Fingers. You could actually take home a vertebrae, which looked like a little piece of a spine. This last name wasn't actually far off. Vertebraries really were parts of skeletons. They belonged to the dinosaurs that had swum in the ancient sea that covered Lyme Regis millions of years ago. Richard Anning was a cabinet maker in Lyme Regis who sold these trinkets on the side to make ends meet for his family. Cabinet making wasn't the highest paid profession in those days, and the various wars in Europe that drove tourists to the English seaside caused food to become very expensive for working class families. He was married to a woman named Molly, and the two of them had 10 children. Only two of those children survived infancy, Joseph, who was born in 1796, and Mary, who was born in 1799. When Mary was just over a year old, something happened to her that made her a legend in Lyme Regis. A neighbor woman was holding her when a sudden storm overtook the town right in the middle of a horse show. The neighbor carried Mary under an elm tree to seek shelter with two other women, but the elm was struck by lightning. All three women who had been standing under the tree died, but Mary survived. Whoa, whoa, wait, hold on. That's some Harry Potter type stuff right there. She was like the girl who survived. Yeah, totally. As far as we know, though, she was a muggle. But still, people began to whisper that she had been spared for a reason. She must be meant to do great things. Did she? Well, yeah, that's why I wrote this story about her. Despite this fascinating beginning, Mary went on to have a fairly normal childhood for a working-class Dorset girl in the 19th century. This, of course, meant that she didn't have much of a childhood at all. As soon as she was old enough to be trusted out on the high cliffs of Lyme Regis, out she went with her father and brother, assisting in the family's side gig. You might like to imagine this wasn't so bad for Mary, that throughout her life she had pleasant memories of spending long hours with her father and brother, learning the secrets of seeking these mysterious snake stones and devil's fingers high above the waves of the turbulent Atlantic Ocean. I know I do. This doesn't mean that the job wasn't dangerous. These cliffs were prone to erosion, which meant that parts of them could come crashing down at any moment. If a storm came, Richard, Mary, and Joseph had to get out as soon as they could. And there was always the risk that it wouldn't be soon enough. There was a plus side to these frightening landslides. If parts of the cliffs that the Annings had been working on came crashing down, that meant that new parts would be revealed. Who knew what wonders might lurk beneath? Mary and Joseph were forced to set out on their own after their father died in 1810. They were successful enough that they didn't starve, at least, and Molly Anning, their mother, committed to managing the trinket business full-time, selling her children seashells, not too far from the seashore. It wasn't long after this that after a particularly heavy storm, Joseph discovered something that was both amazing and terrifying. It was a skull, four feet long, that belonged to some kind of creature the likes of which Mary and Joseph had never seen before. They were sure it was some kind of sea dragon. They dug the skull out. It must have been backbreaking work for a preteen girl and her older brother, but the rest of the skeleton was nowhere to be found. Mary made up her mind to find the rest of this creature. It took months and months, but finally she did. 
The sea dragon was 17 feet long. It turns out that Mary had discovered the body of an ichthyosaurus, which belonged to a new class of creature that scientists in London and elsewhere were just starting to formulate theories about, the terrible lizard, also known as a dinosaur. An interested gentleman who fancied himself a scientist bought the sea dragon skeleton for 23 pounds. In those days, you couldn't go down to a college and find a thriving science department where people studied the wonders of the universe. If you had the money and were interested in something, you learned about it on your own time. Many of these Renaissance men began hearing talk in their illustrious social circles of the amazing things that could be found in Lyme Regis and began flocking to the town to see what there was to be discovered. They were all fascinated by the creatures, of course, but also by the young girl who bravely climbed out onto the cliff seeking fossils, often with her little dog, Trey. By the time Mary was a young woman, the fossil money had dried up for the Anning family. One of the wealthy gentlemen who had benefited from the Dorset woman's knowledge set up an auction of some of Mary's most interesting discoveries and ended up raising hundreds of pounds for the family. The dinosaurs she discovered began to find their way into a new sort of institution, the Natural History Museum, and her specimens to this day can be found all over the world. Mary risked her life fossil hunting on an almost daily basis until her death in 1847. One landslide on the cliffs killed her poor little dog, and Mary only narrowly escaped with her own life. She didn't get as much recognition as she perhaps deserved for her work when she was alive, mostly because she was a woman and because she was working class. But now we recognize her extraordinary achievements. She discovered two major species of dinosaur, the ichthyosaurus and the plesiosaurus, and contributed to the brand new study of paleontology from an incredibly early age. The Geological Society of London did make her an honorary member, and she received some money to help advance understanding of the science of life's beginnings on Earth. This means she was the first woman to receive a scientific grant. In 1850, the Geological Society installed a stained glass window in Mary's church, depicting her incredible life and discoveries. In 1865, none other than Charles Dickens himself wrote an article on Mary concluding with some very true words. The carpenter's daughter has won a name for herself and has deserved to win it. So there you have it. What you might have once thought of as another tongue twister, if you thought of it at all, tells the story of an incredible young girl and the important discoveries she made that scientists still admire her for today. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells... It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Question number one. The woman from our next story, Mary Somerville, tutored another young woman who made a huge scientific impact, and her name was Ada Lovelace. Miss Lovelace is often described as being the first what? She was the first computer programmer, if you can believe it, way back in the 1800s, no less. She worked with Charles Babbage, the father of computers, and among other things, she wrote an algorithm to be carried out by machine. It took incredible creativity and vision to do such a thing. And she'd probably be amazed to see what we can do today. 
Question number two. Nearly 100 years later, another woman named Grace Hopper pioneered computer programming in America's armed forces. Do you know what branch of the military Grace Hopper was a veteran of? When World War II began, she tried to enlist, but at 34 years old was deemed too old for service. So she joined the Navy Reserves, where she worked on the Harvard Mark I team. By the time she retired, she was one of the most important figures in computer programming and a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. Not bad for a woman who nurtured her curiosity by taking apart alarm clocks and putting them back together as a little girl. Okay, and here's question number three. The man who... The, the man? The ma okay, I'll go with it. The man who invented the polygraph, or the lie detector machine, was a scientist who also created one of the most enduring female comic book heroes. Who was it? Well, it was Wonder Woman, and we bet her lasso of truth meant something especially important to the inventor of the lie detector machine. The past and the curious. Mary Somerville. 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 The past and the curious. We take you now to Scotland, 1790. When Mary's father returned from sea, he was absolutely dismayed to find that his 10-year-old daughter could barely read, knew nothing of math, and spoke with what he thought was a terrible, strong Scottish accent. In his eyes, she was a savage. Those are his words, not ours. Well, her dad was a vice-admiral in the Royal Navy, so appearances and a child's finishing were very important to him. So quickly, he sent her to an expensive boarding school, but only for a year. He wanted her to get the basics, but not a complete education. See, most women of the time simply would not receive that complete education. When she returned, her reading was passable. She knew a bit of math and even some French, but that was really about it. Still, the school experience awakened something in her. It turns out that Mary Somerville was a genius. But genius cannot develop alone. So she pestered everyone for informal lessons in geography, astronomy, Latin, whatever anyone else might know. She devoured that knowledge and anything that she could squeak out of people. Her brother, on the other hand, would benefit from a private tutor and great teachers. This was not uncommon. Young men, whether they liked it or not, were given the lessons and education opportunities that their sisters often desired. But during his mathematics lessons, Mary would stand by the door to listen in and try to pick up what knowledge she could. One day, her brother was absolutely stumped by a question, and Mary couldn't help herself, and she blurted the answer through the door. You can imagine that the tutor was really taken aback, most surprised at the girl's voice calling the correct answer from all the way out in the hallway. After that, the tutor allowed her to unofficially continue her studies with him. Now, this didn't sit too well with her parents. Again, they didn't want her to get too smart. 
Though the year 1800 would bring a new century, the world was still a long way from the progress of women's equality. That really wouldn't begin until the following century. So the girls of Mary's period, especially the ones from distinguished families, were expected to attend balls, dance, and present a sweet and genial demeanor. They were not judged on their ability to solve algebraic equations. At one point, her parents told her, Enough already. It is time to cease your pursuits. It is unbecoming of a lady. But she couldn't stop. There was too much more to learn. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something that you weren't supposed to do? What, what am I saying? Surely none of our listeners have ever done anything wrong. Allow me to rephrase. Do you know how other kids do things they're not supposed to do? What do they do? They sneak into their room, and then they shut the door, and oh so carefully, they tiptoe backwards so as not to make a sound. And then they do whatever it was that they were not supposed to be doing. Probably eating cookies in bed, right? Well, Mary was no different. But when she snuck into her room to avoid the pesky prying eyes of her parents, it was to do something you'd probably never think to do. How could you even consider such a thing? She was learning algebra. And when her parents found out, they got really mad. Well, life went on for Mary. As a young adult, she did the things that were expected of her. She married, she had kids, and she began a life. Sadly, when her husband died, she was only 26 years old, and she returned to her home in Scotland. She was left with enough money to live without great worry, so she immersed herself in the things that brought her comfort. Mostly some light reading. You know, plane and spherical geometry, conic sections, astronomy, some of Newton's Principia. Remember when we said that she was a genius? Well... She was an autodidact, too. The word autodidact comes from the Greek roots autos, which means self, and didactos, which means teach. So the word describes someone who teaches themselves, and usually refers to a high level of knowledge. You wouldn't use the term to describe someone who's a doctor in their field, but if there was someone who knew as much as that doctor and learned it largely outside of formal training, well you might call them an autodidact. When she remarried to Dr. William Somerville, thereby becoming the Mary Somerville that we know and remember today, she moved to London, where her new husband was a part of a scientific circle and a member of the Royal Academy. As smart and respected as he may have been, he was always very clear about the fact that his wife was far more brilliant than he was. And because of this, Mary met conversed with and impressed nearly every scientific mind in England. To her surprise, one day she got a letter from a friend who knew she had a unique and important ability. This man belonged to the hilariously titled Society for Diffusing Useful Knowledge. He believed that a new, important, and quite dense book, Mécanique Celeste, was a book that no one really understood, but probably should. 
In his estimation, maybe 10 people in all of England really understood it. It was technical, dry, and complex, and it would require the reader to understand all of the math the author used before they could find the useful knowledge, which in and of itself was quite a lot to tackle. But he knew Mary could understand it, and more importantly, he knew she could explain it so most other people could understand it too. Soon enough, she agreed to try writing a book explaining this other book about celestial mechanics to the common folk but only on one condition. If her book wasn't good enough, and neither she nor the Society for Diffusing Useful Knowledge was happy with it, then the manuscript would be burnt, and nothing more would be said about it ever again. But it would not burn. Both parties were satisfied, and it turns out that the common folk, well, they were too. The book would sell out in its first pressing and then continue to do so many more times over. This really made a name for Mary as she was bringing science to the masses, sort of like a Neil deGrasse Tyson of her day. Mary published several important works of her own, as well as more explanations of other people's dense and complex scientific discoveries. So take note and never stop learning. Mary actually published a work the year she turned 80, and continued to edit and revise her manuscripts until she died in 1872 at the age of 91 years old. But that's not all she would be remembered for. It turns out that she, Mary Somerville, the girl who couldn't read when she was 10, the girl who later had to sneak algebra studies locked in her room, the woman who didn't really get serious about the sciences until she was a 26-year-old widow? Well, Many people claim that she was the first person to be called a scientist. Before this, it was common to call people natural philosophers or men of science. The problem with calling her a man of science should be obvious to you. But there were philosophers who did not agree with their term being used to describe these would-be scientists and what they were doing. It was totally different from philosophy. In 1834, a man named William Hewell wrote a review of one of Mary's books, and he was very impressed with her ability. In his eyes, Mary's knowledge was broader than most in the field. Her work brought together geology, chemistry, mathematics, physics, and more. She understood and wrote in a way much like an artist could, connecting unrelated things and taking inspiration from the word artist and combining science, the term scientist was settled upon. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it was the first time the word would ever be written, and it was used to describe Mary. The word scientist certainly beat some of the other terms Hool and his cohorts threw about. I don't know why they didn't settle on my favorite one, though. Nature poker. Mary Somerville, nature poker. Now, nature poker or not, Mary Somerville did enjoy many awards and honors during her life, but has also been immortalized today by having a college, an island, and even a crater on the moon named in her honor. So, think of Mary the next time you're gazing at the moon, or poking around in nature. So there you have it. Episode 14. Thank you all for listening. Women of Science. 
Um, we have some t-shirts that are really nice looking. We're going to send to our Patreon sponsors while supplies last. So you just might want to consider that. I'm just telling you. Um, tell somebody about our show. We would love it. And give us a review on iTunes. That helps immensely. So our song this week before we go. The song isn't in the great American songbook, but it's a great song. More modern. Uh, what else would it be but She Blinded Me with Science? Uh, this is an arrangement, an instrumental arrangement by a band named Squeezebot featuring Todd Hildreth on accordion, Meg Samples on drums. This recording has Brandon Johnson on the tuba and Mick Sullivan, that's me, on the banjo. Hope you enjoy. Science, 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 science.